as he was called because he spent so much time on his knees. He's the brother of Jesus. And his whole letter to the church was to remind the church what the church should look like. It was quite humorous because I knew I was going to bring forth this message um, here the third week of Advent. Uh, Zach and Mary go to Christ Community Chapel in Hudson. And Kim asks all our kids, you know, Amy and Ben go to Providence and Zach and Mary. They were all gathering together on Sunday afternoon um, while Daniel and Marissa were with us. And so Kim, in her true Kim Sherman fashion, said, how did the Lord speak to you this weekend? And Zach looks at her and says, well, the Lord punched me in the face again. <laughs> he told a story how Joe Coffey said, you know, if anybody ever tells you their favorite book is the book of James, something is wrong with that person. You know, because James is just convicting statement after convicting statement after convicting statement, which is good for us. But uh, you got to look at them kind of askance. And so here we are today in chapter 5, beginning with verse 7, looking at what it means to be a people of waiting. And while we wait, how should our lives look like? What should we look like? And so it's, these are the characteristics of waiting disciples, a people of patience in the season of patience. So that's the first thing. We're to be called people of patience. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? And there's really two kinds of impatience that James is talking about here. The first is patience with God. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That was the theme of, of the week one of Advent. Our Lord's coming. We don't know when he's coming, and so we stay awake. And so we wait on the Lord. We're patient with him as he is patient with us. Amen. And so this, this word that is used here reminds us that we are to be people of great expectation, even as we wait. Because the second part of this verse is really where we want to go to, and where James is taking the early church, because it doesn't take him long to turn from impatience about God to us being impatient with one another. It's important. Verse 9, James turns and talks about patience with people. And this is why I spoke earlier about James. Spend time in James, it won't be too long before you're under conviction. Because James could have said, yeah, don't be impatient with people who mistreat you or irritate you. Don't take revenge on them. Don't punch them. Because we all would say, well, we don't do that. Right? We're nice people. Because an awful lot of people like us don't do those things. But notice what verse 9 says. He says, don't grumble. Which is a very easy thing to do. He's addressing it to us. The way we talk about one another. And grumble against one another. 
Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Grumbling is complaining, scorning, griping, nitpicking, fault-finding all the time about others in our church family. Notice he doesn't say, hey, it's not that bad. You know, just, just try to avoid it, okay? No, he says, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. We'll be condemned for our grumbling. So the natural question is, is this just another example of Christianity being unrealistic in its standards? You know, because James could have said, don't sweat the small stuff, folks. You know, everybody grumbles. I mean, we're a grumbling culture. I'm kind of expected to grumble as I'm driving down I-90, you know, <laughs> going toward Cleveland. I mean, a lot of people grumble. They don't mean anything by it. They just grumble at you. They grumble about you, whatever. But the frightening thing James is telling us is that this can become settled in our hearts and it can become toxic. It's serious. It's so bad that he wants us to see this because we will be judged by being grumblers. And God doesn't condemn, condemn things just because we enjoy them or because they're easy or because he wants to give you busy work like that lame teacher. Remember you had those teachers that just gave you busy work? You know? Um, no, this is... This is a doctor doesn't forbid a patient from eating something because it tastes good. A doctor forbids a patient from eating something that, even though it tastes good, undermines his or her health. God is absolutely natural in his judgments. There's nothing mechanical about it. God only condemns those things that are eating away at the fabric and peace of our hearts and our relationships with him, our relationships with one another, and our relationships with the world. God brought the world into existence to be a place of harmony and peace. And he condemns anything that is destructive to us. A great illustration of this is in The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis portrays a dream and the, the, the narrator is the traveler, and his, his guide is a person named George MacDonald, a Scot, who actually was a person. And so uh, they're on a bus ride to hell. And people in hell are on a bus ride to the outskirts of heaven. And so the people that are going down to the outskirts of hell try to talk to the people out of being in hell. He doesn't believe this is what really happens. It's fiction, after all. But he gets some great points across in the story. And so the people that are from hell are called ghosts because you can see right through them. They're really not there. There's nothing to them anymore. And the people from heaven are called the solid people or the bright people. And so the author whose person this dream is has this George McDonald professor along with them. And so they come to the outskirts of hell and they encounter a conversation about a grumbler. 
The conversation goes like this. At this moment, we were suddenly interrupted by a thin voice of a ghost talking at an enormous speed. Looking behind us, we saw the creature. It was addressing one of the solid people and was doing so too busily to even notice us. Every now and then, the solid spirit tried to get a word in, but without success. The ghost talk was like this. Oh, my dear, I've had such a dreadful time. I don't know how I ever got here at all. I was coming with that Eleanor Stone, and we'd arranged the whole thing that we were to meet at the corner of Sink Street. And I made it perfectly plain because I knew what she was like. And I told her once, I told her a thousand times, I would not meet her outside that dreadful Marjorie Banks woman's house. Not after the way she treated me. That was one of the most dreadful things that happened to me. I've been trying to tell you because I felt sure that you'd tell me I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear, till I've told you. I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking, and I was to look after the house, and I did think I was going to be comfortable after all, after all I'd been through. But she turned out to be so changed, absolutely selfish, and not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself. As once I said to her, I do think I'm entitled to a little consideration because you at least lived out your time, but I oughtn't have been here for years, and yet, oh wait, I forgot to tell you, I was murdered. That man never should have operated on me. I ought to be alive today, and they simply starved me in that dreadful nursing home, and no one ever came near me to visit me, and on and on and on. So the traveler walks away, and the professor says, What troubles ye, my son? I'm troubled, sir, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me the sort of soul that ought to even be in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked, just only a silly, garrulous old woman who has gotten to the habit of grumbling. And one feels that a little kindness and a little rest and change would put her all right. The professor responds, this is what she once was. That is maybe what she still is. If so, she, will, she could certainly be cured. But the whole question is whether it's now she a grumbler. Well, I, I should have thought there's no doubt about that. She is a grumbler. Aye, but she understand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, at least the trace of one still there inside of her, the grumbling, it can be brought back to life again. If there's only one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow on it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes... We'll not go on blowing them up in our eyes forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler, says the traveler. The professor says, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood. And you yourself, still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour, may will that mood embrace it. 
And you can repent of that and come out of it again. But there may come a day where you can do so no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever and ever like a machine. But come, you're here to watch and listen. Lean on my arm and let us go for a little walk. C.S. Lewis wrote a preface to Paradise Lost. He says, a vote for Satan is a vote for hell. And a vote for hell is a vote for endless autobiography. There's nothing more miserable than not being able to get out of your own head and out of your own knees. That's all that grumbling is, right? There's nothing more miserable than not being able to get out of yourself. And hell is endless autobiography, absolute self-absorption, concentration on nothing but you. Why aren't you doing this for me? Why is this happening to me? See, what is hell is your life for mine. The way of the gospel is my life for yours. And it's liberating. Actually, it is liberating. There's nothing more enslaving than to be looking at every situation and thinking to yourself, what's in this for me? Why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? See, a, a vote for hell is a vote for endless autobiography. You ever been with someone who can't say anything except talk about themselves all the time? Well, according to this passage, they're halfway to hell. They're happy if you don't talk about yourself. But they can't stand to be with other people that are like them. In fact, other people like themselves are the people they most hate. You see, brothers and sisters, grumbling will kill us. And everyone around us eventually. So God does not say, don't do this just because he's giving you some busy work. He says this because it will kill us and we'll be judged for it. So we're to be patient. You know, patient with the coming of the Lord. We all get that. We've, we're in Advent. We're Advent people. We understand that. That's his timing. But we're patient with one another, not grumbling about one another. So what do we do about it? Well, James tells us, verse 10, we're to be steadfast people. Verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. Have you seen the purpose of the Lord? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That Greek word steadfast, marketherio, in the Greek, it's a word that really means to fix ourselves, to stand firm. Not to budge, to obey immovably. No matter how messed up, no matter how senseless the circumstances of our lives are, we stand firm, remaining steadfast no matter what's going on in our days. That same George MacDonald an actual Scottish author wrote a wonderful story about this point 
entitled The Princess and the Goblin. There's a little princess and her fairy grandmother. The fairy grandmother at one point says to her, because there are goblins, you need to hold on to this thread that whenever you are surrounded by them at nighttime under your pillow, this thread will be there, and all you have to do is reach for that thread and follow that thread to me, and I will take you back to me. But I warn you, it will feel like that thread is taking you in the absolutely wrong direction, whatever you do. But follow the thread. It will bring you back to me in safety. If you leave the thread, you'll be lost. If you hold on to it, I'll be at the other end. No matter what you do, follow the thread. Well, the way the story goes, she is in danger. She reaches under her pillow. She finds the thread. Every other time she had found her grandmother when she's surrounded by goblins, but one time she decides this can't be right, so she goes her own way. And it doesn't go well for her. So she goes back to her thread where she stumbles upon her friend, who's one of the heroes of the book, named Curdie. Curdie said, how did you, you find me? Well, we just got to follow the thread. He goes, what thread? I don't see any thread. There's no such thing as a thread. I can't feel it. And she says, I have to follow the thread. Follow me. So she holds on to the thread, and it seems to be going the wrong direction. And what does Curdie say? That's not the right way to go. I've been that way. And she turns and says, I have to follow the thread. I know how stupid it looks. It doesn't matter that it seems suicidal. I have to keep the finger on the thread. And she starts to cry. She's only eight. He says, all right, okay, we'll follow the thread. And follow they do, and they get out to safety. They discover the grandmother. Verse 11b, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The whole idea that James is trying to drive home to us is that we cannot follow our own wisdom. Very often to follow God's wisdom is to look absolutely crazy, suicidal, if you will. But that's not the case. And the only way for us to understand this is to look at the one who is filled, as James says, with compassion and mercy for us. When Jesus was on the cross... The superior Job, the prophet behind the prophets, the one who was filled with compassion and mercy, hanging upon the cross for us, the crowd at the foot of the cross is saying, how can this be happening? <laughs> this makes no sense. Here's the man who had miraculous power, who had virtually healed everyone who asked to heal him in Palestine. Here's the man with incredible wisdom. He obviously has enough wisdom to heal all the world's social and political ills. How can God allow this to happen? What in the world is the Father doing? 
They looked at the greatest act of mercy and the greatest act of wisdom in history. And many people, I guess, it's just a hunch, lost their faith on Good Friday. They said, how could this be? How could God be allowing this? In 2018, people going, this is going to be our building? Really? Look what God has done. Do you know the reason why we don't act that way about the death of Jesus Christ is because we have the book. Amen? You see, the fairy grandmother didn't tell the little princess why the thread was going that way. She said, follow it. And it turns out the princess was rescued. Turns out that's the right way. God didn't tell Isaiah that he would have a wonderful, successful ministry career, and he didn't. He didn't tell Jeremiah why he always had to be running for his life. He just told them, keep your finger on the thread. And they kept their fingers on the thread. They fixed their hearts on the reality of God's love and grace and truth. My friends, this Advent and Christmas, we can too. If we look to the one who really kept his finger on the thread, Jesus Christ. That thread took him to the cross. It seemed to be going the way of death, going away from life. But life is found by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following him. Because on the other side of that cross is a resurrection. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Fill us, Holy Spirit, so that we can be patient with you, Lord, and trust your sovereign plan. Fill us, Holy Spirit, so that we can be patient with one another and not grumble about one another, nitpick one another, to love one another. And that we could always keep our thread, our hands on the thread of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for granting us your patience by giving us your son. By looking at your patience with us and his patience with you, O oh Father, we can become people of steadfast faith this Advent and Christmas. And experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, to make us such a people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.